I'm recording this while I have a stew of goulash up on the stovetop using my butcher box ground beef. It's one of the dishes that my Eastern European grandmother used to make all the time, so there's a bit of comfort that comes along with this particular meal. And I always enjoy when my butcher box shows up because I know in that box is 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork that's raised crepe-free, and always wild-caught seafood. If you're looking to create some recipes from your youth or some comfort food for yourself, you can sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality at checkout to enjoy your choice of bone and chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year, plus you'll get $20 off. Again, that's butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Comedy fans, listen up. I've got an incredible podcast for you to add to your queue. Nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. You probably know that I made an appearance recently on this absolutely ludicrous variety show that combines the fun of a late night show with the wit of a public radio program and the unique knowledge of a guest expert who was me at the time, if you can believe that. Brace yourself for a roller coaster ride of wildly diverse topics from Paula's hilarious attempts to understand QAnon to riveting conversations with a bona fide rocket scientist. You'll never know what to expect, but you'll know you're in for a high spirited, hilarious time. So this is comedian Paula Poundstone and her co-host Adam Felber, who is great. They're both regular panelists on NPR's classic comedy show. You may recognize them from that. Wait, wait, don't tell me. And they bring the same acerbic yet infectiously funny energy to Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. When I was on, they grilled me uh, in an absolutely unique way. <laughs> about conspiracy theories and yoga and yoga pants and QAnon and uh, we had a great time. They were very sincerely interested in the topic but they still found plenty of hilarious angles in terms of the questions they asked and how they followed up on whatever I gave them like good comedians do. Check out their show. There are other recent episodes you might find interesting as well like hearing crazy Hollywood stories from legendary casting director Joel Thurm or their episode about killer whales and killer theme songs. So nobody listens to Paula Poundstone is an absolute riot you don't want to miss. Find Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, Conspirituality listeners. It's Matthew here. This is a special unlocked episode from our Patreon Early Access Swan Song series. 
we'll be dropping these periodically into our main feed. Thanks so much for your support. Welcome to an episode of a Conspirituality Podcast bonus collection, the Swan Song series, a tour through the paradoxes of Teal Swan, an influencer who embodies the tangled history and whiplash contradictions of our beat. This collection will be accessible first through our Patreon feed, but we will release each episode to the public over time in our regular feed in addition to our Thursday episodes. Topics will revolve around the method, the myth, the impacts and implications of one of the most unsettling conspirituality figures alive. Content warnings always apply for this material. Themes include suicide and child sexual abuse. To our Patreon subscribers, thank you for helping keep our platform ad-free and editorially independent. And to everyone else, thanks for listening, including followers of Teal Swan. We hope this is all useful to you as you consider your relationship to Teal's story and influence. Well, here we go with installment number two of the Swan Song series. This one is called Teal Swan, Art and Artifice, and we're joined by Paola Marino. Hey, Julian, here we are. How are you doing? Doing okay. I mean, you know, just riding this news cycle between between politics and and uh, uh, hearings and COVID and all the rest of it, um, like everyone else. But I have to say this project... Uh, is engrossing in terms of the research and the creative work. Yeah, well, I'm 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 glad you think so. I'm enjoying it too. I mean, I'm sometimes I'm hating it. Um, <laughs> one thing I really hate right now, and I have to work on it, is I have a burning disgust for Lawrence Pazder mm. uh, that I really have to get my shit together about because uh, he's the co-author of Michelle Remembers, um, which we'll start to look at in our next episode. But when wait my, is he the is he the warm eyed lithe bodied sandy haired handsome man from Michelle remembers? Yes, yeah. yeah he he is the devout Catholic psychiatrist who actually rejects psychiatry through that book, um, and describes himself in very flattering terms. He does, yeah. yeah. But I mean, when my blood pressure is down, um, yeah. certain things are becoming clearer. And I think the first thing that I think about is that looking at Casby's film has me looking in the mirror more closely as a cult journalist and starting to interrogate some of my own like snap reactions and tendencies towards uh, vigilantism. And what I appreciate about this topic today and the interview that I was able to do with Paolo Marino is that it's pushing me all to, first of all, really look carefully at how I frame a figure like Teal Swan, like how quickly I come to my own thoughts uh, about about how to how to frame the content. Secondly, um, I'm really I think considering more carefully who the audience is for this analysis and how they mm. can be either engaged or isolated. And then um, thirdly, particularly to Swan's case, to I'd say increasingly humanize a figure who has taken on superhuman dimensions. Uh, by recognizing that there are really normal, horrible things going on underneath the surfaces of the satanic panic. And that I think Occam's razor is really useful when thinking in a de-escalatory way about what's plausible in really bizarre stories. Although I don't like the image of Occam's <laughs> razor. Uh, I think I'm in favor of something gentler, maybe our Occam's garden trowel. Yeah. Um, Occam's spatula. I Occam's, don't know if you have an option. Occam's detangler. 
right, is really what we're trying to do. We're trying to detangle the mundane real world abuse and the, and the scars that it creates from, from these fantastical sort of deflections or I, I don't know that they're so, it's so complex. Yeah. Elaborations, uh, shifts to the symbolic order, uh, mm-hmm, certainly mm-hmm. cries for help. And before we get to all of that though, I just want to look back to our first episode and thank you again for being so forthcoming with your story and judging by the responses on Patreon, I know that it was illuminating and helpful for a lot of people. And I just wanted to ask you how it felt to put it all out. Yeah. You know, those, uh, those comments were really nice. I appreciated all of those kind and supportive responses. And of course, then people also, as our Patreons will know, sort of opened up about some of their own experiences, uh, which is, it's lovely. I mean, I, I think for me with the podcast, like I really enjoy the work and I really appreciate the uh, the recognition and the fact that we have found an audience who appreciates what we're doing. But more than anything, whenever there's an individual who feels that their personal struggle is positively impacted or supported or we become a resource for them, that's, that's the best. Yeah, that's yeah. gold. Yeah, yeah. So, and then in, in terms of my own process, it felt good to make sense of it anew through the lenses that we're currently applying and also to be contextualized within what we're looking at for this series. Uh, it's not as emotionally intense, certainly as it used to be many years ago. And, and even as it was the first time when I discussed it here, that was a year, maybe 18 months ago. Um, but I do, I will say I had a very profoundly good cry while I was watching the deep end and it was sharing that with you, which sort of clued us into the idea that revisiting uh, my own experience might be, might be useful. So it's, it's alive in me and I'm grateful for another turn of the wheel in terms of processing and integrating and, and making sense of it all. Yeah, and hopefully the wheel didn't turn too hard because uh, listeners might appreciate hearing that as we got closer to the end, I started getting really excited, maybe a little bit uh, long-winded and technical in my questions. And at the same time, of course, you were getting pretty tired out. Yeah. And then because of your tech setup, uh, you're, you're running your device on a battery, and I asked you something uh, complex, and you sighed. And you said, <laughs> well... My battery is about to die. So, and I edited that bit out, but afterwards you said, like, you were talking about your own battery. Yeah. So, this is pretty funny. This is the place where I reveal that actually I'm, I am an AI. I actually am a transhumanist, (laughs) as, as some of the conspiracy theorists believe is the case, that that's what the vaccine does to you. It was my laptop battery, but, um, your words were definitely swimming together in my mind as I tried to keep track of what you were saying at that point. And some of it is also just being so in the reverie of like an emotional um, process of remembering things and remembering how things felt that have been particularly consequential in my life uh, for which I have had a lot of conflict, you know, I think it's, it's exhausting, but it's also like, I'm not in, analytical intellectual mode. So it was like, I don't know what the fuck Matthew's talking about right now. Right. Yeah. I don't think we often uh, respect those category shifts and mm-hmm. boundaries. Um, or, I mean, I think we're sort of intuitively aware of them. And then, you know, it's the point at which a conversation or an interview starts to sort of 
fall apart often, mm-hmm. I think, is mm-hmm. that one person or the other has like misattuned to the fact that, oh, now we've shifted out of, you know, our heart space and now we're moving <laughs> into our mind space. Uh, <laughs> but that's not coordinated with the other person. Totally. Um, anyway, there is one kind of moving forward question that I did want to ask that I, that I felt was left hanging. Mm-hmm. I asked about how you felt your daughter might be negotiating uh, this difficult, you know, early childhood she's had that's had significant, you know, medical trauma, confusion, perhaps feelings of betrayal. And you basically explained that in your house, you let her take the lead in discovering that these experiences are, yes, really bad, but also eventually understandable and reparable through love and attunement and support. And so, I asked you that, but then there was something else as well, and and I wanted to to uh, get to that. Yeah, I mean, with regard to everything she's been through, she had a really difficult birth. She had she had a a bad pneumonia, double pneumonia that ended up having to be hospitalized, but they couldn't figure out what it was at first. She's had multiple ear infections and terrible bouts with constipation, and we've been in the emergency room or urgent care probably at least ten times in her in her short life so far. She's four. That's amazing. She's just turned four. That's a lot. Yeah. And a lot of it was actually really close together. Um, but there have been several moments since then where she's brought up those memories. She said, hey, remember when this happened? Or she's just sort of like crumpled to the floor like in a crouch and, and said, you know, and started talking about something that happened. And we're just very aware of making space for for further discussion and emotional attunement in those times, asking her questions, telling her what we remember about the story. Uh, And you will ask her before we go to the doctor, if she remembers the last time she was at that doctor or in that building, Uh, we tell her how proud we were of her and also remind her that everything that happened was, was really to help her get better. Uh, I have found the fact that she's asked, she has specifically herself un, unsolicited asked to go to the doctor when she's seen the first signs of an ear infection, for example, or when she's been super constipated. She's like, I want to, can you take me to the doctor today? That seems like a good sign. Um, yeah, I would she say also, so. Yeah, and she also incorporates some role play as she has a little doctor set that someone gave her at some point unconnected to any of this. Um, she will do sort of doctoring with caring for her dolls and her stuffies. And and she'll do the whole thing where she's like, now this is going to hurt a little bit, but I need you to be brave. And it's to help you because, you know, we really care about you and want you to get better. So she's, she's, uh, she's working through it in, in a way that seems uh, really, really positive. Um, And it's, it's one of those things, as you know, I think it's not until you're a parent and you have to negotiate those kinds of, um, almost impossible seeming emotional trade-offs where, you know, either you're going to risk her feeling betrayed, either we're going to risk her feeling betrayed and, and traumatized, or she's potentially, you know, going to be very, very sick or die. Uh, you sort of choose the one you have to choose. And it's, it can be hard not to feel like you're rationalizing it when you say to her later, you know, it was for your own good, because that's what someone would say if they were evil, but we're, we're not, we're, we're caring for her. And I think that the, there's also a, a very, one of the things I find helpful is remembering how much of communication is implicit, how much of it is body language, tone of voice, facial expression, uh, and not, uh, and that you can't really fake that. Like either, either the love is coming through, 
or it isn't. And that's, that's how, um, I think when we're very young, we're that, that, that's much more impactful than anything else. I think I mentioned this during the last episode, but the moment in which you described her glance of betrayal is not something that I've ever experienced as a parent because in our own emergency room trips, I've actually been able to feel like the protector pretty much all the way through the sort of the sequence and not as the person who um, would be sort of complicit in some kind of uh, you know procedure that wasn't understood but but rather the person that the child could come back to but you're describing a much more stressful situation so I really I really empathize with that the moments where where we've had to hold her down so she could be uh, get receive an IV or or have blood taken and she's looking in horror at her own blood some of which may be like spurting up or something you know like go splashing it's like really grotesque and yet it's you know it's it's those moments when you're also reminded that as um, sophisticated as medical science is and as as and how incredibly fortunate we are to have it there's also something incredibly like gothic and macabre about it. Yeah, and that's never going to go away. No, because it's bodies. It's because it's bodies, yeah, right? It's the insides of bodies. <laughs> yeah, but here's the question that I wanted to end with last episode. It's mm. kind of two parts. What's your advice for the person seeking therapy who feels that they want or they need to explore early childhood experiences that are possibly traumatic? What should they be aware of, knowing what you know? Well, yeah. And I guess, secondly, yeah, yeah. should I do the two parts? Okay. Uh, what is the first feeling that a person might have when they are being led into a distorted view of their past? And are there internal cues that might help someone put the brakes on? Yeah. I mean, I think we, we live in a time where there, there's so much good literature out there. And there, there are so many good books that have been written um, for a broader audience, for a, non, uh, a non-professional audience. Um, people like Pat Ogden and Peter Levine and uh, Dan Siegel and Rick Hansen. There's just so much really good stuff out there about trauma and the nervous system and what what neuroscience and somatic psychology, you know, as it's continued to progress, uh, can tell us. Uh, and, and so much of that has moved completely in the other direction of all of this repressed memory stuff. Uh, so I think learning about that. If, if you do have a trauma history or if you're, you know, considering that you might have a trauma history, learning about just doing some, some reading, I think is really good and, and probably staying away from some of the uh, glamorous Instagram influencers who claim to be experts on trauma and, right. you know, instead get, be immersed in some good, solid literature. Um, and in that same sort of vein, I would say seek out a therapist who is up to date on the current trauma models and, and a lot are these days. They're going to be more somatically informed about the brain and the nervous system. They're going to give you tools and techniques to help uh, self-regulate and to help process any intense memories that do come up really carefully and in, in bite-sized chunks so that it's not this, this big kind of overwhelming cathartic thing where you're rushing to interpret things too quickly, which would be one of the red flags for me. I think that... Uh, a sober therapist is not going to overinterpret memories that may be more impressionistic by speculating that you have these kinds of repressed memories about something specific. 
they're going to have a very patient and accepting attitude toward letting the material come up as it needs to and supporting each step and just letting it sometimes be loose-ended. I think that they're going to take the educated stance that um, some traumatic experience doesn't really require narrative certainty in order to be processed and resolved. I think that's sort of one of the dominant um, perspectives these days is that you can work through the nervous system charge and how it affects you in your daily life and perhaps accept that you, you know, you might not be a hundred percent clear where it comes from and that sometimes it's not as literal as that. You're not going to find the newspaper archive that records the event. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and along those lines, you know, memories change over time. We know now that it's memory is much less like a read-only digital recording of an event that you can go in and access, like you're saying with the newspaper article. It's, it's much more like a simulation that is being accessed and sort of re, uh, recreated each time. And it's very permeable to ideas, beliefs, emotions, relational dynamics, um, whatever's present in the moment interpersonally while you are accessing the memory. So each time it sort of gets rewritten, it's a draft process, much more so than a, than an, uh, a, a completely clear record. So I would say, you know, any sense that you're being coached or pushed or told what it is that you can't recall is never good. Uh, technically, we know this sets up a heightened transference in which the patient will now be seeking the approval of the therapist who's sort of a stand-in parent. And that approval is going to be linked to the pressure to perform accessing more awful memories, as uh, I know we're going to talk about with Michelle Remembers next time. Um, and so then in terms of internal cues... My sense is that, and my experience is that, trauma-informed therapists are going to actually help you to establish those internal cues. Uh, concepts like grounding and orienting and resourcing, which are all sort of under the heading of, of self-regulation, of learning how to manage your internal state a little more smoothly. Uh, this can really help feel more of a sense that the organic cycles of of intensification and soothing or arousal and, and sort of calming back down uh, can be more sustainable. And if the therapy isn't doing that, if the therapy isn't smoothing out those cycles and creating more of a sense of being grounded and in touch with uh, reality and in, in a sort of interpersonal and emotionally attuned way, then I would say get out because it's probably, uh, it's probably unsafe. You know, I just want to pick up one thread on how to engage with or, you know, <laughs> I don't know, uh, take in the professional credibility of the person who mainly presents themselves on Instagram. I mean, everybody's using that. It's not necessarily a, a problem. Yeah. But, you know, there is this phenomenon uh, that we'll see in Michelle remembers, and that I think is echoed in the some of the dynamics from what we know of the available information between Teal Swan and Barbara Snow. That the more the therapist seems to be making a public name for themselves as an advocate for a particular type of um, phenomenon or uh, uh, 
new finding, I would say that's something to treat with caution as well, because it's quite clear when we get to Lawrence Pazder and Michelle Smith that he has transformed her and continued to exploit her as his project. Uh, And there are hints of that in what we know about the interactions between Barbara Snow and Teal Swan in the sense that, you know, she facilitates the initial reporting. uh, And it also seems that uh, Teal Swan was doing some kind of maybe informal recruiting on Snow's behalf. Yeah. And so I think if if the identity of the therapist is wrapped up in the achievement of the therapy mm-hmm. uh, or the or the aspirations that that you have um that that that, that is a real sort of uh, machine for transference, heightened transference and and then countertransference as well. Yeah, and learning some of those concepts I think is also really helpful because it's it's just the water that you're swimming in whenever you're you're doing therapy. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll just share very quickly that one of my closest friends who, who really did suffer horrific abuse growing up uh, ended up in analysis, you know, like real solid, you know, uh, institutional, rigorous therapeutic modality with a person who was getting their PhD in Kleinian psychoanalysis and who as it turned out, was sort of writing their um, their dissertation on the work with my friend and with some other people. Oh, for Christ's sake. And took her down this, because Klein, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Klein stuff. A lot of it is about, it's about how infants and small children have like incredible hostility toward their parents. And a lot of it is about yeah. owning that hostility. So, right. so she really did a number on my friend's head over the course of several years around how, you know, she may have instigated a lot of this abuse through her own hostility that she really needed to look at. Or maybe, you know, like, like I, I won't go into details, but, um, yeah, so it can it can be present, you know, whether it's the Instagram influencer who's done a weekend training and how to use theta brainwaves to heal your trauma, or it's the person who's deep in in the in the bowels of institutional rigor. It, you know, we're all susceptible, right? Somebody who needs their doctorate, somebody who needs yeah. more citations yep. or more field work. Oh shit! Okay, moving on. Um, we have a really interesting interview with. Paula Marina to roll, and we'll get to that. Uh, I'm going to link to um, the uh, her documentary, which is called uh, Open Shadow, in the show notes. And I'm going to link also to Jennings Brown's The Gateway once again, uh, which we've described as kind of a high watermark in teal reporting. Now, um, The Gateway came out in 2018, and Marino's film... Uh, Open Shadows um, came out in 2017, and it followed Teal Swan through encounter sessions um, while focusing primarily on her sort of dream-weaving aesthetics. So we see in this film Teal Swan in action, but also in a kind of privacy Um, We hear people like Blake uh, and her own parents transparently discussing her mystique, what they love about her, but also what they find disquieting. Now, I have a memory of watching this film many years ago, uh, so watching it this time around wasn't new to me. But after The Deep End came out, I went back and dug it up uh, because I was reminded of it through comments in a Teal Critical Facebook group. 
Now, people at that point in this Facebook group had only gotten through the first two episodes of The Deep End, and they were already saying that John Casby had made uh, as much of an idealizing piece about Swan as Marino had. And, of course, the full series put that comparison aside because they don't wind up in the same place at all. So I went back and watched Open Secret. Uh, Julian, or Julian, you had seen this film before or, or not, um, but what, what, what were or are your impressions about it? No, I had not seen it before. So I came totally fresh to it after having watched the first three episodes of The Deep End before the fourth one came out that was so controversial. You know, my first impression is it just seemed like a puff piece by someone who admired her. It's really artistic and intimate. It's beautifully shot and edited. Uh, the, the I didn't realize at that point that these were, you know, unique, that they had unique access in terms of the the interviews. But I thought the interviews were really, you know, just just gentle and and um, accommodating. Uh, it was interesting to watch, and yeah, I think there's I think there's more to explore here. You know, the film back when I first saw it at first did raise my hackles because Marino doesn't really do anything to push back against the spell of her subject. In fact, she really is there to document it. And I think that my mindset at the time, uh, and at that time, I think I was I was completely absorbed in writing my book about the cult at the center of Ashtanga Yoga and the abuses of its leader, Patabi Joyce. And I just didn't really have time for a non-investigative look at something in this landscape. But the thing is, is that like I didn't start my writing life as an investigator. I started as a poet and a novelist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to admit that I was primarily in that mode, in that, you know, artistry part of my life, attracted to the weird, the transgressive, the surreal. Um, And for the most part, I would describe my writing as a kind of extended teenaged rebellion against hypocrisy. You know, my first novel was heavily inspired by Cohen's uh, Beautiful Losers, uh, my second novel was heavily inspired by Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. Oh, and when that I say old heavily inspired, that old yeah, that old, <laughs> right? And when I say heavily inspired, yeah, <laughs> why not? Why not Ulysses? <laughs> right? Um, yeah, when I say heavily inspired, I mean you know, kind of derivative, uh, but but with a, a few turns of the screw, like I definitely could have written a novel with a teal swan like character at the center as a hero. Um, and, you know, I think that these novels were okay, um, but a little too derivative, as I say, maybe a little too uh, straight, a little too square. But, you know, whatever. I was 26 yeah. when that part of my life was over. And what I remember most was the the writerly eye, uh, in which I wasn't really looking for crimes. Uh, I wasn't looking for answers necessarily, but for kind of shards of glitter. So the poems that I would write, the scenes and chapters that that evolved into uh, the two novels would evolve out of, you know, sometimes strange, often inexplicable obsessions uh, that would come in a dream or a waking intrusive thought. And then I follow it and, you know, I don't know where it's going to lead, but I go. Let me say about that, I... 
I, I had a very similar experience. I would say my, all through my 20s, there was a lot of dream journaling. There was a lot of um, working on creative writing that is impressionistic and very and very open to the possibilities of altered states of consciousness. I mean, I remember working on a novel in which uh, a man's uh, wife had died, but he was discovering a sort of access to the spirit world through a, a melody that he discovered on the piano that would that would then sort of bring, you know, colors into the periphery of his vision, kind of like a like like a, a what do they call that that pre seizure kind of they call it an aura, the aura, right? right. I, like yeah, just very, very fascinated with discovering layers of hidden meaning and other worlds and and something beyond the everyday sort of limitations of growing up into what felt like a, a very limiting adulthood as as a creative right. person it's really interesting that it that your character um, hears a melody mm-hmm. because you're also like a guitarist and I think like you're Talk if you were talking about guitar, that that fragment is a lick, yeah. That c- can hang out and be there and develop and ferment and then turn into something else. Is, am I right about that? Because I never played guitar. Yeah, I mean, there's this. I, I think for me, the fascination with music has always been that it is it's this nonverbal language that that through the physics of vibration to sound like a new ager here, but it really is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the difference the difference between hello, hello, and hello, yeah. hello. The difference yeah. between that major and minor third is is an emotional resonance that somehow hits our nervous system a particular way because of h- how they vibrate together. Um, yeah. So that's that's always been fascinating to me, and and how phrases, you know, music music is made up of phrases, and and a phrase is a is a snippet of language, and what is it that it's conveying in terms of pattern and um, correspondence and some kind of geometric, you know, color filled like uh, synesthete um, alternative way of, of experience experiencing things. I think for me as a teenager the archetype that was always hovering in the background of, of being a guitar player and what drew me into playing in bands and being in music school and all the rest of it was, it's just that single sustained note, whether it's Santana or Jimi Hendrix or David Gilmour from Pink Floyd, just holding that emotionally searing note that just penetrates and soars above everything else as some kind of timeless transcendent moment in which as a performer, you can you can bring a whole group of people together into some kind of truth that is there in in that aesthetic, emotional, expressive moment. Yeah, if only in your own head yes. while you're on stage, <laughs> yes, exactly. right? Because it, it depends on what state they're all in and how many drugs are being consumed. Well, and yeah, and that's yeah. the fantasy, right? The fantasy right. is that you are channeling something in a transcendent way, even if even if that's not from a supernatural kind of perspective, but that that there's there's some kind of breaking on through to the other side to mention one of my old heroes. Um yeah, and and of course it's it there's there's a piece of that that's just grandiose and solipsistic. You know, um, we've given John Casby a really hard time in a bunch of episodes, and I just want to note that I think that he, I actually I don't think I, I have no doubt that he has these impulses too, mm-hmm. um, and that if he were to limit himself to art films, 
like no harm, no foul, uh, or like singing songs at the coffee house. <laughs> but, um, but with the deep end, for whatever reason, money pressures, market demands, uh, naivety, he crossed over into a kind of myth-making that took a turn into um, a kind of uh, anti-cult propaganda. And I think if you want to be truly artistic about things, you really have to earn it. Ooh, isn't that the truth, right? That's sort of the struggle of of coming into some kind of maturity as a creative person. Uh, you know, if I, I really feel that tension. I felt, I felt that tension going to music school and wanting to just be a savant but having to having to buckle down and be like, oh God, this is hard, and I suck at it, and and I I, right. I need to struggle and I need to learn and and I have to earn the privilege of of being able to be in the company of these people who I who I admire, who I aspire to to emulate. The reason that I was really happy to speak with uh, Paula Marino is that I think she shows that she keeps her artistic stance and identity really clear and centered. Um, you know, she's there to observe, not objectively, uh, but artistically. And it's like she's searching magpie-like for things that are shiny and sharp. Um, but also, as I mentioned to her in the interview, sometimes what she winds up finding is actually boring. Uh, and there's a real value to that. Um, you know, it's put me in the frame of mind that uh, I, I always recall when I think of this dear friend and mentor who taught me more than anyone else about writing because he used to say, if nothing else, um, you have to make sure that you surprise yourself because if you don't, you'll be serving your conditioning, you'll be serving the dominant culture, perhaps even you'll serve the state. Uh, I think in the case of the deep end, you know, the team might wind up serving the content streaming overlords, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and this is even as or if, you know, Casby professes to go in with an open mind to not know where the story is going to wind up. Somehow, uh, even so, the story wound up in an overdetermined place at the expense of honest editing. And in the end, this belies the artistic aspirations. You know, because it's, it's, it's so interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's yeah. making me think, you know, I, I mentioned James Joyce jokingly a little bit ago, but Joseph Campbell would always reference this particular, I don't know if it's a chapter or an essay or something that James Joyce wrote about art and how he felt that art had the function of creating a moment of aesthetic arrest and that on either side of that kind of sacred moment of aesthetic arrest, you have either propaganda or pornography. Yes, yes, yes. I remember, I was trying to remember that quote actually yeah. this week because um, uh, that's stuck in my mind from years and years ago. Yeah, so that either either you are telling people what to think, in which case yeah. you, are, you are creating a propaganda piece, even, you know, just in terms of the tone, the tone of it, or you are titillating people in a way that seduces them into a, a, some other kind of experience that you're manipulating, and that he refers to as as pornography. And I and I want to just say that with, you know, I, I just said something about you know we were talking about Casby kind of having to earn that artistic freedom, and and I will say that you know he's he's very very skillful at what he does yeah. do in terms of the filmmaking. Totally. And I'll also say about Paula that, and it's great having listened to the interview, that she is very clear about where she stands and where she's coming from and what what is fascinating to her, what 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 calls her to create a piece, and that she's not a journalist and she's not someone who's doing, you know, cult analysis or anything like that. 
I mean, I have to remember this um, principle of surprising myself and through surprising myself, earning the right to a kind of artistry. I have to remember that like every day because if I don't surprise myself, um, I'm probably... I'm probably I probably think that I'm heading into research, but I'm in fact really just hunting down my own suspicions. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a difference between learning in a way that surprises you and working to confirm, you know, your own cynicism. And I think the former happens through open listening, and the latter happens through predatory listening, which I know the feeling of. Uh, sometimes this podcast project has actually exacerbated that um, that that feeling in me that I'm sort of watching the feeds for the thing that is wrong, mm-hmm. and um, and I and what I really want to find is the thing that is most wrong. <laughs> Um, and, uh, that is, you know, that has its use and it also has its, uh, limitations. Yeah. There, there was this other, um, important figure in my writing world, uh, though I never met him, uh, because by the time he died, he died at the age of 44. I was only 17. Uh, this was a Canadian, uh, experimental poet named BP Nickel. Uh, and by the time he died, he, he had attained this quasi saint like status in the Toronto literary world. And, um, you know, for Americans or anybody else in the world who, who might not know him, um, he, he, he might be compared to somebody like Richard Brodigan, I think. Um, but his output of books, broadsides, cartoons, paintings, word games, puzzles, he did early computer programs. This is like the late seventies. Um, wow. And it was just unbelievable. And he was definitely a prodigy, definitely neuroatypical, and absolutely committed to endless immersive aesthetic meditation. Um, but what he would say is, I have come to serve the language, um, to speak to Joyce's point, mm-hmm. right? That, that, and, and that what he meant was that there was a lot to gain by exploring aesthetics, exploring the language itself, investigating the moods and mysteries that like accumulate through etymology and grammar and rhythm. Um, and the other path that he was hinting at was that using language didactically or politically was something altogether different, that it put the writer in a zone in which they could not be sure that they weren't producing propaganda. So I get a kind of nickel-like feeling from Marino's artistic approach that her primary focus is to serve the aesthetic, to let that tell a story. And of course, the liability is that if Swan is a cult leader who weaponizes charismatic aesthetics, that kind of film plays to her advantage as kind of a calling card. And, you know, if, if, if people really lean into that, uh, that, that piece of art can take on a recruitment function. So, not looking at that question is fair, but it's also a risk. So I have to say right here that in different ways, I think both Marino and Casby did that. Uh, when we watched the first three episodes of The Deep End, there was a sense of like coming from me, like, oh, I feel like this could be recruitment material because they make it seem so edgy and alternative and kind of noble and beautiful and 
um, it's a lifestyle, you know, it's the teal swan lifestyle and we're taking you in to, to see how it feels. <laughs> and then with, with Merino, like it, it is, it's, it's, it's really lovely art and it's intriguing. Um, the difference being, of course, that with the deep end, with, with Merino, she's sort of accommodating and with the deep end, they end up betraying. Uh, and I think it's one of the reasons why Jennings Brown is, has a little bit of a minor heroic status for us because he, he cut right through the center and he's doing something else altogether separate from the Joycean, uh, uh, like stru- structure or, or proposition because he's, he's doing, uh, the best kind of, um, high integrity journalism that he can and trying to be really cautious. And so in that caution, he's, he, he is able to sidestep either being overly aesthetic uh, in a way that is, that is uh, uh, seductive or being overly um, doing that predatory listening thing that you're describing where he's doing confirmation bias and saying, see, I knew all along. It was a cult. She made people commit suicide. Like he doesn't do that. All right, Julian. I think that's enough chit chat and artistic meta reverie. Thank you for sharing this watery territory with me. Let's roll the interview, shall we? Yeah, it's a good one. Paola Marino, welcome to Conspirituality Podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start by asking about the moment you knew for sure that you wanted to follow Teal Swan and capture some of her world on film. Hmm. The very first time. Well, it's interesting because um, the first time actually I saw Teal and uh, uh, it was a period of my life when I was uh, uh, following some uh, other spiritual teachers or uh, wise, you know, people on YouTube. And uh, I remember that, uh, you know, how YouTube suggests other videos related to the same topic. And uh, on the very top of the suggestions, I could see all the time the thumbnail with Teal. And actually, my very first impression was, oh, no, this it's not possible that, you know, such a beautiful lady with makeup and the way she, you know, portrays herself is connected to spirituality. <laughs> this is not possible, no. And I would disregard, I mean, this is a scam. I thought it's a scam. And then actually uh, there was uh, uh, one day she was interviewed. There was in the thumbnail uh, the person who interviewed her and the same person interviewed somebody I respected back then. And I said, oh, my God, he's interviewing this lady. I want to listen. And that's when I got really uh, interested, you know, in, in her personality. And also then I did some research so I wasn't a follower. Uh, that's not, you know, it's not the, her content that drew me in. It was actually her, her story that I found very interesting. Can you remember who the interviewer was and, and who uh, I, you had trusted? Do you remember yeah. who the other person was? Like, because I'm, I'm interested in how these, uh, these bits of content get meshed together by the algorithm. I, unfortunately, I, I don't remember his name anymore. Uh, it was back then in 2000 and. 12 I believe 2013 so I don't I don't really remember right because I haven't followed but you say that the it was the story that really captivated you yeah this is first of all the personality I was really uh interested in her 
personality. She was really passionate, you know, and uh, what so many people might mistake as uh, she's angry. No, for me, it was like passionate, really passionate and uh, really straightforward. Uh, no bullshit. You know, can I, can I swear on this? Yeah. No. By all means, okay. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, swear. Uh, so no bullshit, nothing. So I felt that she was very relatable. Uh, she wasn't like everybody else. She was kind of different. That that's what really attracted me. You know, I'm a, I'm a former novelist. I have never made mm. a film. Um, but what I remember about initiating a project was somehow becoming fixated on a particular scene, an object, uh, sometimes a dreamlike sequence, mm-hmm. and then simply oh enter, entering into the story from there. Um, you're saying that you were attracted to her personality and to her story, but was there an image as well, uh, something yes. that happened for you in that way? Yes, there was. Okay, now I'm going to re- actually answer to your, uh, answer your question because <laughs> okay. I kind of uh, digressed there. Uh, then after this, basically I had a dream. And uh, Tia came into my dreams and uh, she was this very abstract image that was coming and going and she was saying, everything is movement, everything is movement. And that's when I woke up and I said, I need to make a documentary about this person. Do you remember her saying everything is movement in the first interview that you saw? Yes. Something, no, everything moves. Everything moves. That's exactly what she said in my dream. No, but did she say that in the documentary or did you, you, you dreamt, you dreamt her voice saying that from what you knew of her from the from what you'd seen? No, it's just, uh, yeah, it, it was just in my dream. I, uh, and it was just in my dream. It's not, it's not in the documentary. It's not, uh, just a dream that I had. And that's what really, it was that time when I understood I wanted to make a documentary about her. I don't know if I answered your question. You did definitely. And yeah. I think that, um, from watching the documentary several times, everything is moving is a good sort of hermeneutic that you've used because or that went on to inform the way that you filmed it because definitely everything is moving uh in 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 the in the film um you know looking back through your catalog um the aesthetic that stands out as foreshadowing of open shadow i think becomes a little bit clear in these montage pieces you made to celebrate opera Yes. So, uh, so, so there's, there's a, there's, there are clips of, uh, Cherubino, of Carmen, yes. of Delilah. Yes. Um, and there are many fragments of Open Shadow that bring that same kind of, uh, drama forward. Is that a fair mm. line to draw, do you think? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's interesting. And thank you for saying that because, uh, I wasn't, Coming, when I decided to make this documentary, I wasn't really coming from uh, uh, documentary making. Uh, I was coming from music videos, uh, video art. And uh, in fact, uh, the very first idea of uh, doing a project about TR was really, I really wanted to go into the abstract, uh, more experimental, uh, not so much documentary. But then, uh, you know, you know, 
became what you know like a documentary basically but 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 I was more inclined to make a more abstract piece on her I don't know I felt that it wouldn't that people wouldn't have uh, uh, they wouldn't understand it you know I, I felt that uh, uh, I, sh- I should have gone more mainstream so I kind of was like you know in between. <laughs> I, I think, and I think that's evident from the final product, is that it does straddle this line between, you know, these uh, montages of, for instance, uh, you know, she's standing on the Great Salt Lake. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and yeah. she's and she's wading through um, what what seems to be some sort of large baptismal pool. Uh, but then you also zero in on talking head interviews with Blake and with her parents. And so there is this kind of um, two, two methodologies being used. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And I can imagine, so I can imagine coming from video music, video production, uh, realizing that there's, there's also something about this story that has to be documented in a particular way, but, but maybe not having the, the planning for all of that. Yeah. Uh, or <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I consider actually uh, the footage that I had like a studio of, uh, you know, when when uh, you paint, uh, you do, a, you, make, you know, you do a painting and uh, there is a studio and then you go into the actual painting. For me, this was actually a studio. If I had more time, if I had more freedom, because all of a sudden things started happening, uh, money started coming, the pressure of, uh, you know, delivering a product, uh, the, 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 the expiring date, the, the deadlines and all of that expiring date too, <laughs> in certain ways. Um, but yeah, um, so that pressured me and really, uh, took me away from my initial, um, ideas. Yeah. I think one of the places where, I think I see your original approach is in a fairly extended monologue that Teal gives uh, over footage of her painting. Mm, yes. Um, and there's one thing related to both the artistry of the film and to her own art is that this kind of shows her to be utterly focused on her own internal work. Like, I'm, and I'm not that... Um, I'm, you know, I'm not that partial to the actual painting. It's not, it's not painting that I would put on my walls, but I did really appreciate the concentration and the focus. And it made me think about how the world in general knows this person as an extremely online extrovert and performer yeah. in some ways. Yes. Uh, but it seems that you also captured a very solitary person as well. Absolutely. Yes. And she has those moments. It's uh, she's that you know. It's very difficult to you know to to you you don't you would never know if they are not captured you know uh, and put out there because she uh, she's there um, in the public as a public figure as a person who talks who teaches and so on. So right, you know, and it's funny because the whole feeling of this film captures some of uh, a lost intimacy from Mm -hmm. what I would call like a pre-digital age. Like this does not feel like she's running out of the painting room to go be on Instagram or it's slow moving. 
and it almost feels pre-digital. You know, it is obviously it's digital film. Obviously, you know, she's an online presence and you're filming with digital equipment, but it has an older feeling to it uh, that almost predates the, the chaos of social media. That's a very nice observation, actually. Very, very nice. I, I like this observation and it feels like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, because I think so much of what what becomes of Teal Swan's story uh, in the following years is really both the product of and exacerbated by a kind of social media echo chamber that she knows how to manage in many yeah. ways, but that is also in a strange way beyond her control. Yeah. Uh, and... So I, I I have this strange feeling that uh, she's a very particular person who has a life and a method of communication that predates a certain level of online chaos. And then she is somebody who also has to exist beyond that threshold uh, and into a very a very volatile world of now mass and increasing exposure. So I, what I appreciate is that your film sort of captures maybe the last moments of a, of a more private person. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Thank you. You know, in, was, in, um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, it was very, um, this is actually what I was aiming at and, uh, to capture these intimate moments, uh, what people never see basically. Uh, to give a more like um, whole picture of what she is and who she is. So, yeah. You know, um, we're, I'm going to ask you your thoughts on the deep end uh, in a bit, but one of the, one of the main differences is that you're not making any attempt to recapture narrative scenes uh, in which she's interacting with people. There is some, um, there are sh shots of her on stage doing the encounter work, but it's not like you're shooting interiors in which uh, we get to see how she's interacting with, you know, her close core of people. Um, and that is, it's interesting because I think what the deep end tries to do is to capture again, what people don't see and yet all of these problems emerge when it becomes clear that uh, the, the, the final product is not as accurate as, as the raw footage would suggest. Yeah. Um, so a difficult project that, that they undertook. But, so I'll get to that in a moment. But you know, on this subject between uh, of, of are you capturing the sort of dreamlike presence of this person's personality or are you doing... Uh, a more journalistic documentary and are you captured by her kind of archetypal image or are you captured by her story um you know her actual story of childhood abuse comes forward in certain places in the documentary as though um it's kind of established fact uh and so i'm wondering when you got the full sort of list of details on uh, what she says happened to her from the ages of six to 19. Were you in the position to verify any of those claims or to corroborate them? Uh, was that part of your job? Did you see? 
Yeah, well, uh, of course, I was questioning myself because, uh, of course, there were things uh, that uh, she uh, tells about and things that happened when she was uh, in the cults and uh, things that the abuser did to her that I was questioning many things because there are things that, uh, to me, felt a bit far-fetched. And... um, but of course, it's uh, it's very difficult to verify because it's a cold case. There was nothing, no proof, nothing uh, to work with. But uh, I had some validations, though. Um, and uh, like I remember uh, one day going to the cabin where she was spending her summers with her parents. And it's uh, north of Logan, I believe. And uh, uh, so I went there with Graciela and uh, uh, Till didn't, didn't come with us because, she, you know, she triggers when she goes to the same way and so on. So we got there, but we couldn't find the cabin. And uh, Graciela insisted because she had never been there and she wanted to see it. So, and uh, we went up uh, on this mountain and... Uh, there was a, a road, the, the road was really like uh, full of, you know, it wasn't, there was no asphalt. So it was very um, difficult to drive on uh, with a small car. But anyway, we got up there and uh, at the end of this very narrow path, there, there is a, a circle that opens up a space, an open space, like a circular shape. We went on the other side, we parked the car and, uh, I was looking at the panorama, the landscape. Graciela was looking around to see if there was a cabin. And all of a sudden I see uh, an SUV, a a white truck, basically, coming in from the path. It was the only path, basically, to that circular spot. And uh, and, uh, the people, two people came, uh, got off the truck and... uh, I started feeling very unsafe, and I told Graciela, let's, uh, let's get into the car, let's, let's go. As soon as they saw us getting into the car, they ran to their truck, and they started the engine, and they blocked this path. And that's when I started kind of freaking out, of course, because there was no phone line. Was no, you know, we couldn't even call anybody and say, hey, we are here, just in case we disappear. So in the meantime, there was another part of me that was telling me, do not, uh, so, okay, first, first, uh, I, I approached the truck, the truck was in front of me, and uh, the Cinquecento was so small that I was able to kind of, there was just a little bit space for me, half of it was, you know, out of this path, and the other half I was on the path, and uh, a voice in my head said, do not run because these people, because you're going to look like the prey and these are the predators. And so I decided to just park beside their truck. I stopped there and I started engaging with them. When this, uh, there was this old man and a much younger man sitting close to him and the young man had a smirk on his face and the old man, he, like, I looked into the, his eyes, and it was, they were, like, 
like glass, like there was nothing, you know, you look into the, into people's eyes and you feel like there is something, there is something in there. Right. <laughs> but it was horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying looking at this man. And I said, Hey, I pretended, you know, to be cool. Hey, we are looking here for uh, a cabin where some friends of ours were spending the summer. Do you know if there is any cabin? And they said, Oh no, no, we don't know of any cabin here. All right, all right, okay, thank you, have a nice day. And I'm boom. We passed the truck and we went, and then as soon as we got down to the main road, I stopped the car to reach for my phone that was in the back of the car, and I see them coming after us. And I said, okay, forget about the phone. I went onto the main road and drove to Logan. Before getting into Logan, the, the truck made a U-turn and went back. So when we got home, I said, oh my gosh, Theo, this, this happened to us. We went, went up to them, blah, blah. Oh, you were close to my cabin and you guys happened to be, she, you know how she talks, and you guys happened to be in the blah, blah, blah. And she said the name of the pit of this place and said that you guys went where they're holding rituals. You happen to be there. They hold rituals. So they keep all their stuff to hold rituals. They're hidden. And they keep an eye on the spot. As soon as they see people going there, they go and check to make sure that people are not nosing about and, and, and discover their stuff. So that, her answer was so quick. It was like dismissed, like, oh, gosh, of course, you happen to be there. Da, 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 da. And she gave this explanation. For me, that, that was a validation. That was a validation of the fact that, you know, uh, she she might have actually gone through uh, those things that she talks about. Um, she might, you know, tell stories that are far fetched. Maybe because I said I thought in my in my head, you know, she was under the effect of uh, ketamine, and uh, it's a drug that makes you have sometimes some hallucinations, you know, see things that are not there. And she remembers them as memories, right? Did she ever talk about the possible um, distorting effects of ketamine on her own memory? No, actually, this is something that I thought about later when I was, when I was uh, editing the footage. And uh, yeah, and I regretted that I, I never asked her about that. Yes, indeed. Uh, as I said, it was a, st a studio. I sh you know, if I had more time, I would have gone a bit deeper on that. <laughs> right. Now, um, there is a 2014 interview. I don't know if you saw it. It was with an Idaho news station. And it's, I think, one of the first times that she comes forward and presents her entire story. Now, in 2014, the story was actually clipped down so that she's only on camera for maybe five minutes or something like that. But the raw footage is is like two and a quarter hours. And it was released in um, 2016 on YouTube. So I wanted to just ask if you saw that full interview before Open Shadow was released the following year. I think I think I saw. Was she wearing because there are some of the interviews? Was she wearing like a white dress? She was wearing a white tunic I, type uh, well, dress. Exactly. I think yeah. I, I yeah. It was that. Remember that? Yeah, and she you know and she looks extremely. Um, she looks quite young. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, and there's a, there's an interesting way in which she, there's almost like a mismatch of affect to content where she's describing incredibly horrible abject details, but also perhaps defensively, perhaps awkwardly smiling as she's doing so. And, uh, so I'm wondering if that was also of interest to you with regard to the personality. I did think about, you know, the reaction to this. And uh, I know that uh, there are people who, um, the smiling is not really like a smiling. It's almost a nervous reaction to a story or a tra- like it's a traumatic event. Maybe they, they, this, they kind of dissociate themselves. Like there is a kind of a, a detachment at one point. And, uh, uh, but I, I have also other theories, which are a bit more complex. <laughs> I don't know if I should share them, but it's just my, my opinion. And um, yeah, I, well, I'd yeah. be interested in hearing because, I mean, there. I understand the basic premise of defensive self-protection through, you know, putting on a brave face or smiling or yeah. laughing almost sarcastically at particular yeah. details. Um, but, you know, I also know that uh, there's a lot of research on how, for instance, um you know, survivors of domestic violence give uh, testimony in court and how they might do things that appear to be contradictory to the emotional reality that they're describing. Yes. So, yeah, what are, what are your other ideas there? Um, no, basically, I prefer not to share it, actually. Not, sure. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Okay, okay, good. Yeah. Um, your film comes out in 2017, and then in 2018, Jennings Brown uh, produces the Gateway podcast. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I'm wondering what it felt like listening to that. It was very compelling. It was very well done, very well narrated and stuff. Uh, uh, clearly, he goes there with uh, his own ideas. And I can tell already that he's... Uh, uh, he's going to read, interpret, um, tell, and what she does in our community in his own way, which is, okay, this is a cult, and and uh, they're doing this, and uh, uh, this is not okay, and so on and so forth. Um, there are many elements of, uh, how should I say, like uh, the horror story, you know, Um, make it even more compelling I guess Uh, yeah so he 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 went he went there with an idea in mind already set okay so but yeah Uh, do you have any uh, more questions about it or I I do I mean I I think that you know he perhaps had um, some questions or some problems that he wanted to solve. I think right off of the first episode, he's talking about how uh, within a few 
sort of rounds of looking into her content. She also comes across online criticisms from former members. Uh, she comes across uh, news about Leslie, who he sort of focuses on uh, as Teal's first client who dies of suicide. And that becomes kind yes. of the the mystery that that ostensibly he sets out to solve. And he doesn't really solve, and he admits that he doesn't solve it because there can't really be a causal relationship made between what Teal Swan mm. said to her, whatever she said to her, and and her dying of suicide. And that's true of all of the suicide cases, actually. Exactly. Uh, right. I mean, there's the, you, you can make correlations if you like, but you, you really can't go farther than that. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I think that what I really appreciated was that he nailed together what a complex historical figure she is by showing that she had a therapeutic encounter with Barbara Snow, mm -hmm. who was known within Utah for being a satanic panic therapist, and she was on probation. She'd been accused of planting yes. false memories and so on. So had you was that news to you? Had you heard of Snow before your film opened? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, I, I heard uh, about Barbara Snow, and uh, uh, she and Teal talks about it with her friend Lauren. Uh, in uh, I believe, I don't know if uh, it's in the bonus footage. And I think it's in the main. I, I wanted to ask. I wanted to confirm main. that that was Lauren actually. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted friend. to confirm that that was Lauren that that she was there. It it looked like her. I don't think she's named in the film in a caption or anything like that. But I could recognize her because Lauren's actually reemerged. I don't know if you've seen this, mm -hmm. uh, but in the wake of the Deep End, um, uh, there's a person named Diana Ribera who has come forward and said, well, I was Teal Swan's neighbor uh, in, you mm. know, this small town in Utah. And, you know, I pretty much can tell you that what she says about her childhood can't have happened because of these reasons. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And then, and then um, Lauren comes back to, to visit and they're on Instagram together with Teal saying, this was actually my real friend when I was a child, um, yes. which is very confusing. Um, yes. But, okay, so that is Lauren in your film. I think she's saying that she met her least favorite, I think the quote is that she met her least favorite psychologist at the age of 16, who said that, um, you know, if she didn't sort herself out, if she didn't get help, that she might be institutionalized or she might not live a long life or something like that. But I had the impression that, uh, or my understanding from the documentation is that Swan actually met uh, Barbara Snow at about 19 years old. So maybe mm -hmm. she's talking about somebody else. But in any case, you had heard of Barbara Snow. Yes, yes. I heard about it, and there is this whole thing about false memory and so on, implanting false memory. And, uh, well, Tia, she, she says that uh, for her it was different because she actually remembered uh, everything that happened to her. Uh, so, so that puts her in a different category, I guess, according to her claims, right? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, forced memory is a very, whew, it's, a, it's a very delicate 
thing because uh, uh, there are like um, hor- like horrible stories of uh, of uh, fathers who were accused of uh, having abused their kids and they've been put in jail and they were completely innocent. So it, it's um, double. How do you say un coltella doppia lama? A double double. Uh, double blades double, double bladed sword right exactly you say right. knife in italian <laughs> in the sense that in the sense in the sense that um ostensibly it would be good to recall what has happened mm-hmm. uh if one seems to be feeling the after effects of a traumatic experience mm-hmm. and the liability is that sh- it might be invented or exaggerated or exactly. um, implanted, right? Right. Exactly. When it's implanted, it's uh, it can be very dangerous, <laughs> as we can imagine. You know, yeah. speaking of uh, memory and um, documentation, I think one of the most notable things about your film is and the extended footage is that you have maybe. 20 or 25 minutes with the Bosworths. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And so I wanted to ask about that because they seem very forthcoming, uh, very um, empathetic with regard to this child who they tried to understand. Yes. But in the interview in 2014, Swan says, quite shockingly to me, that mm-hmm. she forgives her main alleged abuser, but not her parents, uh, mm-hmm. who she calls bystanders. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, while you're interviewing them, did you have the sense of her anger or lack of resolution at them hovering in the background of that interview? No, it's interesting. The only thing that she said uh, is that... Um, you're going to be the only one that my parents uh, will trust <laughs> with the interview. That's all she said. <laughs> Why did she think that? Maybe because I, um, I don't abuse of the, maybe because I, ha- I have an ethical approach to when I am with a camera in front of people. If, uh, if like you, like you had like, you said, if there is something that you don't want me to put, I'm not, not going to put it. And it's, it's <laughs> right. extremely, it's extremely respectful, you know? And, uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I talked to, to her parents before, uh, I connected with them through Skype back then. And, um, and, uh, they were very reticent. They didn't, at the beginning they wanted, then they had, uh, kind of a fight with Tio, so they didn't want to be part of the documentary. Then I talked to them again, and uh, they said, okay. And I said, look, if there is something that you don't want me to put at the end, I will cut it, and you can sign the release form, right? Right. So, and, uh, so they did, yeah, we, we liked each other. We, there was a good feeling, a good vibe, and... Um, and the only thing, no, uh, Tia was uh, was okay with me going and interviewing them. Absolutely okay. She she didn't say anything uh, except for the fact that she observed. Oh, I think you're going to be the only one uh, that will be able to interview my parents or something like along those lines. Yeah. 
it feels like your general approach is non-intrusive, that you're observant, uh, yeah. that you would like to record, and you would like to capture the kind of both the aesthetics and the feeling of the thing. Um, I'm wondering if part of what made that a trustworthy experience is that it doesn't sound like you pride very much. I mean, I can imagine myself or other interviewers sitting down with the Bosworths and saying, you know what Teal says about her childhood? Is this true or not? And I don't think that would work. Uh, that would be a very short interview. <laughs> no, actually, I, I asked them about the abuser and that didn't make the cut because they asked me not to put it. Ah, okay. I was going to, that was my next question, actually, yes. was whether you asked them directly about Doc. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, uh, and um, yeah, they said, they said that uh, they found very, very, very strange that all of a sudden this man disappears from town without saying a word just when Teal moved to Park City. And they couldn't understand why, why, you know, he didn't say anything. And... Um, so there are other things they didn't want me to put in. So, and I had also validation about certain things through the parents, through her parents. So yeah, it's, uh, I had to respect that. I couldn't use the footage. So. Given the fact that, that you're uh, keeping confidence here, I wonder if there's a way for me to ask this, but when I ask you, were you doubtful of some of these stories or did you have confirmation and you describe the story on the mountaintop? Um, would you say that what you heard in your interview with the Bosworths but weren't able to publish also gave you some confidence in the backstory? Yes. Okay. Yes, it did. Yeah. And, and so the, the public just won't have, can't have access to that. No, no. It's a very it's a conundrum, right? It's a it's a very it's a very deep uh, it's a mystery. Yeah, um, for me, you know, I, I'm not. I don't have the nature of the journalist. I don't have the nature of the investigator. I, I, that, that's not me. That's the thing. <laughs> right. Um, because um, in this particular case, at least, I can see the complexity of uh, first and foremost, like Teal's, Teal is very like multifaceted kind of person. And, um, so it, it's, uh, I, I, I think, I feel like whatever I can say about her, her story, who she is, it will never say it all. It will never. And, uh, I'd rather not to say or to keep a little bit, you know, in, uh, yeah, being superficial, actually. <laughs> like, uh, superficial in a way, like, uh, maybe superficial is not, I don't know, but being, um, I don't know what's the right term here, but uh, maybe diplomatic, I don't know. No, it's not, not even... Do you know there's a there's a kind of an academic term that comes to mind, which is mm. that uh, it's not overdetermined. Um, my understanding of that term is that the viewer of the media 
will not be strongly pushed towards a conclusion. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I mean, superficial. I I think it 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 works if we really limit it to the meaning of aesthetic. Exactly. That's what I had in mind. Aesthetic. Yes. Exactly. I mean, you're also. It sounds like you're also expressing a kind of philosophy of observation as well. Like when you say, "No matter how much I included about Teal Swan in this film, it would never be complete." Yeah. But that's actually true of the investigators' report as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I don't know, does it matter? That's what, uh, in this case, because there are many, many other cases where it matters. I saw documentaries where, um, you know, it's good to know that they're there and they're talking about what certain people do because they can really, there there are criminal criminal acts and, and like that. But in this particular case, where I didn't, I wasn't dealing with any criminal, you know. So does it doesn't matter? It's such a great question. It's such a great question. I mean, uh, when we interviewed John Casby, um, we said uh, we asked, "There's nothing in your documentary about her claims." Uh, you don't cover what she discusses about her childhood at all, really. Um, and there's no reference to the history of Barbara Snow. There's no reference to um, the details of, of the cultic abuse. And so was that we asked, was that a directorial choice to keep things in the present moment? Or is she also de-emphasizing those things? And he says, well, we were with her for three years and she never brought it up. It's something that she's not emphasizing. And so when you ask, does it matter? That's a really good question in terms of how much a part of her authority with regard to her followers is that material still in play, right? Do, do Are people attracted to her because they believe what she said about her childhood if she's not really saying it anymore? Uh, it's a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, yeah, at one point she, she decided to put the past aside. She didn't want to be... Uh, she didn't want to bring it up uh, so much. Um, so I guess that uh, that was uh, like coming out in the open with her story at the beginning was uh, uh, important for her because maybe she was healing in that way by being public and talking about it. And yeah. A cynical view would be she's putting the story aside because the internet has found it out and uh, it's not going to fly anymore. Mm. Um, A more generous view is um, I don't need to rely on that story anymore. And so I'm going Mm. to stop telling it, but either way the story begins to recede into the background. And I think the real issues that uh, she brings up with regard to 
what is depression and where does it come from and what do people do when they don't have access to mental health care or what do people do when when they can't trust the authority figures those things kind of get obscured by this by this by this uh issue of what can be corroborated and what can be verified i find mm-hmm. now what did you think of the deep end oh boy Well, <laughs> I was shocked. First of all, I was shocked at uh, at the way you know they manipulated the footage, um, because this is like a, to fit their nar- their narrative. Um, was it very obvious to you? It was very obvious, absolutely. Because you're a filmmaker and, and you edit your own work. Yes, yes, I do. Right. I do, you know, together with others sometimes, but I do editing a lot and I can't recognize it right away. And uh, not only that, like, um, it really, there is, like, a, when you document, you make a documentary about somebody, I mean, at least that, that's not a documentary, that's like a, a fictional story, but we're real people in it. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, so they build it like that, but they forgot that these people are actually existing. These are not actors who shed the role and then they are somebody else who goes home and they have their families and that's it. You know, the movies in the theaters and every, maybe they forgot about that, but I find that I found it very unethical of them to play with real humans in order to make this movie. So I wouldn't consider that a documentary. Uh, of course, there are uh, certain things that are not uh, manipulated. They're there. And uh, certain moments where, um, like, uh, there are certain instances that, you know, they, they, they show uh, Teal uh, saying things, being maybe mean or... Uh, expressing thoughts that uh, expressing her anger and stuff like that and uh, there are moments where I uh, when I didn't feel very comfortable with those with those you know with the way she was dealing with certain things in a certain way so and uh, those are there but uh, when you have so I recognize that, that, that this is not cool to me that she's doing this this is not cool it's not cool. Okay. But where you have, but this is not all, Teal is not only that. Teal is more than that. And they didn't show who else Teal is. They just depicted this, this image of a villain as opposed to uh, Blake and Juliana as the heroes. And, uh, and that's it. It's very restricted and uh, very limited. It's like a movie. Very entertaining. Absolutely, for the people who know these characters, <laughs> but uh, highly unethical in my view. You know, you have in your bonus footage, you have an extended scene that's a little bit boring, to be honest. I agree. <laughs> that features that features uh, Teal and Blake just cooking. Yeah, exactly. And so when you say. Uh, the there's a selection of cuts and scenes 
to produce a particular image. There was no boring hanging out with Teal Swan cooking in the kitchen. No. <laughs> no. Nothing not. that would lend a sense of uh, a side of normalcy to this person who yes. might have abrasive or perhaps even narcissistic qualities, but like is also just a person living yes. in the world doing exactly. normal things. Right. Exactly. So it's interesting what you said about they forgot that these weren't actors in the world because, of course, uh, not being actors in the world, they're coming forward now and they're saying, hey, I didn't believe, I, I can't believe how you edited this thing. Um, what's going on with that? Have you followed some of those reactions? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the, like the reactions from... Uh, uh, from, from followers. From the followers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because you might be still, you, you said that you, you went on that trip to the mountaintop with Graciela and she's yeah. one of the people who's come out yes. and said on, said, said on Facebook a number of times, yes. look, I, I am, I am, um, so when, he, when she says, let me ask you this, when she says this film is corrupted by editing because I am depicted as being in scenes that I wasn't in, you as somebody who is there also filming her, do you immediately believe her? Yes, Absolutely. Oh yeah. Because one of the things that happens with a polarization here is that is that people who believe the filmmaking automatically think that she's lying and defending a cult leader. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's a disaster. Yeah. I mean I think that this could have been really a beautiful beautiful uh documentary where the authors uh, they missed the chance, I think, to explore this idea that this might be a cult because it presents characteristic of being a cult. There's no, you know, denying about it. Uh, but under a different angle, maybe not just, you know, so black and white contrasting, you know, uh, it's, it's this idea that, uh, uh, you know, if it's a cult, we have to be afraid of that. There is fear around the idea of a cult. Um, this might sound a little bit controversial, what I might about to say. I'm, I don't belong to a cult. I've never been a follower of, of Teal. <laughs> and, uh, um, and just because of my personality, I, I, I couldn't fit in a cult. I mean... My own sister, at one point, she wanted to uh, join a convent and become a nun. And uh, they had exactly the same rules. Like, uh, you know, you are going to be married to God. And uh, that's your, for the mission is your first priority. Uh, family comes after, right? So, um, and whether this mission is to do good, uh, or to be, to, to do, uh, this is something, like, it's another story, or to, to do bad, it's another story. But um, yeah, they missed the chance to explore this in a more open way, maybe with some uh, narration, uh, like a narrating voice, like uh, the, the podcast uh, people did. Right, Jennings could have narrated for sure. Yes, yes. Yeah. I have a feeling that you could have narrated as well, though. Um, I, I know. I, that's very interesting that you're saying that. 
Right. If you had had the, um, you know, uh, you could have been hired on uh, in in a production role, I think, if you had also been handed all of the journalistic data and then made decisions and had help in deciding what to include and what not to include. But you're making a good point about how um, they attempt to create this. I mean, John's words in the interview that we did were uh, he wanted to create a verite experience, which is kind of ironic because it doesn't, it's not verite at all, um, given the editing. Verite? No. And part of that was to exclude expertise, narration, talking heads, people who could give a little bit of context to it. Um, it's interesting because that's not your your style of of filmmaking either. But I think that you could have probably participated in it mm-hmm. uh, in yeah. a way that gave um, a more generous or less overdetermined view. Well, they actually contacted me back in December, and uh, they were introduced to me. Bit Sola contacted me, the producer. Then I had a brief, just brief uh, talk with uh, John. And, uh, and it was back in December. Blake introduced us. And, uh, and at that point, they told me that uh, they liked Teal a lot, that uh, they even, you know, they, uh, they were very sad at the way um, the haters were attacking her unjustly because she doesn't deserve it. Exactly. And, uh, and, uh, so I, uh, and then they said, I, we have this material. So it's almost like they got stuck with all this footage. And I even told them, uh, uh you know, you can, uh, if you, you know, you can even approach it as, you know, like, uh, as I was saying before, like, uh, uh, if it's, um, you, you can approach it under the angle, can, can this be a cult? Uh, uh, can Tia be a cult leader and uh, going through this angle and uh, with the narration and stuff and see what you perceive about this community uh, maybe leaving an open ending something that to give people people then decide what they want to do about it I even suggested that dance and, and then at the end of the conversation uh, bits seem to be very, very interesting in exploring my footage, the footage that I've never put it out there. And I felt very, un- I bet. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt very uncomfortable at one point. I said, I'm sorry. I, I don't feel very comfortable uh, to show you my footage. I couldn't understand. I mean, you guys, collected so much footage in three years that you were with her, around her, and so on. So I couldn't understand why. Why would they want to see my footage? It looks look strange. So now that I watched this documentary, I started thinking maybe I should, I should confront them and ask them right clearly. Um, why? Were you already, did you already know you were going towards this direction back then and you just you just wanted, you know, to see the footage to, to look for more of, I don't know. There's, there's, there's two mysteries there because to even think about using your footage would make what they produced discontinuous with their own formal constraint, which was, we're going to keep this in the present moment 
Um, and we're going to make sure that, I mean, I don't think there was anything that was, uh, out that was anachronistic. There was, there was no old footage of anything. I don't, yes. I don't believe. No, no. So, no. so that's one, that's, that's one thing. Um, but also what you're saying about, um, uh, the producer suggesting that they were very sympathetic with, uh, Swan syncs up with what, she says about the fraternization that she had with the film crew over those three years that they did birthday parties together, that um, she says that they received some therapeutic techniques from some of the group members. She was under the impression that it was going to be a sympathetic engagement. Um, And so I think, I think they're dealing with the fallout of that being very surprising. And it's not that, you know, a critical view as to what she's doing and whether or not she has undue influence over people and whether or not she's providing uncredited psychotherapy to millions. Those are things that are all valid questions, but it's not like this film manages to ask them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I wanted to, um, I wanted to end with something that might surprise you a little bit. And, uh, I wanted to get your response and, you know, and if this, and if, and if it's difficult to respond to it, then we'll just let it go. But, uh, I have been talking to, uh, Jennings, uh, about his work, about the deep end. We're going to interview him soon, um, about his notes and his thoughts about how this, story has evolved also about the very strange process of watching his very solid and fact-checked reporting become the kind of content skeleton for something that ends up being completely different and how you know we move from journalism into big money netflix style streaming you know documentary filmmaking which i did not know this but uh, I have now learned I'm a journalist. I understand what fact checking is. I know what that process is. Apparently, that just doesn't exist as an industry standard in the documentary world, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is shocking to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I went on Twitter and I said, uh, do I know anybody who is in video production, documentary production, who can tell me how fact checking works as per ind- industry standard? Got nothing. Um, you know i I said because the only way the only way i can imagine it happening is with people spending many hours sitting in a room comparing raw footage to final edits and saying okay uh that is a reasonable depiction of those events uh and that's not um can you fix that please so Anyway, it was very shocking for me. But anyway, here's the surprise. I've been talking to Jennings, uh, and he shared with me something um, that didn't make it into the gateway. But it came up after his team watched your film. And they took this interest in the scene in which Teal shows parts of a journal that she's uh, written in, in a kind of code. Yes. And so uh, they actually did some cryptography Yes. And they came up with a fairly simple alphabetical translation key. Okay. And so I've got some fragments here that they translated. Oh my gosh. Uh, and I verif- and I verified them by translating again, like the alphabet key works. Yes. Um, 
we're having him on and he's going to give, he's going to give more details about that. But you know, what's really fascinating and kind of speaks to how complex this story is, is that I believe that those pages are presented by her as these are the things that were too difficult to talk about. Um, and, uh, one of the translation fragments is kind of looks like it's written as a, children's book fantasy or it's part of it so it says um we were like water sprites my father king samaj was prince of a race of dwarfs he's short and fat and a great king and a loving father i was his only child (laughs) wow wait right so this is yeah we 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 took the screenshots of 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 the code alien yes. language, yes, and yes. And, a crypt, and, and a cryptographer like worked out an alphabetical yes. key. That's crazy. And we did we did translations. Okay, now here's 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 the second one that I'll, I'll give you, which is which is very tender actually. Okay. Um, okay, so it's a little bit broken. Uh, the sentence. Um, uh, it says, uh, "Me." It starts in mid sentence. Me to have convinced myself of things. Because I so much for them want, I guess, I so much for them to be true. What if my talents are only a way to cover being fucked up with uniqueness? What if the basis of my life and beliefs are wrong? Is it possible for me to be any less credible in other people's eyes? They never trust me. Not if I write in this language, wear my kind of clothes, and have the mind that I do. Not if I can't seem more real. Can someone believe? <laughs> that's that's really fascinating. Isn't it? Isn't it amazing? I want to yeah. talk. I want to talk to Jennings. I yeah, talk well, to I'm him. sure you will. Please. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. Does, I'm sure. I will, I will. I will absolutely put you in touch yes. because I, I was um, very moved to hear this story because. You know, not only does it make the backstory of Teal Swan that much more complicated, but also that much more understandable and childlike. Yes. Uh, it also, it also, like, from an artistic perspective, which I think is where your real wheelhouse is. The question is, when she shows you that, um, does she remember what the code said? Or is she actually telling you a secret for you to find out later, right? Um, now, I don't remember if I published that, but um, you, because I don't, I haven't watched my documentary, The Bonus Foodies, in a long time. <laughs> so I don't know what I put out there and I, what I didn't. Uh, is there, when, is there a, any point when she talks about this language, which is where she comes from. She said, this is the language where I come from. I will have to go back and look, but I don't think she implies that it comes from somewhere else. I think she uses the word code. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, and she says, this, this is the language where I come from. And uh, the language that we use is like linear and she said, these are circular concepts and they are ba- based on emotions. She does not say, she does not say that in your okay, footage. I have that footage. Okay. Because 
I remember thinking, this is stuff I want to develop in the future. Because this was so interesting to me because I followed very closely, followed very closely, I read about it, the story of uh, Ildegarda. Ildegarda, she's a nun, just a pull it up. Oh, Hildegard of Bingham. Exactly, exactly. And she also had uh, a secret language in code. I did not know that. I want... I knew she was a polymath and that she wrote mathematics and yes. philosophy and yes. music, but, but you're saying she wrote in, she yes. wrote in code as and well. Uh, Fre- Fre- right. Fre- Federico, Frederick Barbarossa, Red Beard, I don't know, the emperor was using her to, uh, uh, for her psychic, uh, you know, gifts uh, to know whether he had to go to war or not and so on. What, and she would write the instructions in code? No, 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 no. She had also psychic abilities, as you know, uh, just to, you know, she was a confidant of uh, uh, the emperor as she was used as. So she, she's this incredible character, and, uh, and I saw some parallel uh, with, with Teal, uh, especially with this language and so on. Um, because it's interesting because the, her parents, Teal's parents, had this, uh, writings um, uh, checked uh, by uh, by uh, experts, language experts, and they, they they didn't know what it was. They really didn't know. They brought they brought the they they brought the notebooks to somebody who's people who worked in linguistics. Exactly, or? people who work in linguistics, and they said this is the Aramaic. Oh, the assumption was that it was a language and not a code. Exactly. Exactly. I see. Exactly. Wow. But now that you're saying that this, like, uh, like the you guys did this, oh, this is amazing. I mean, I'm so I'm super excited right now. Right. Right. Well, I, I will put you in touch, and and who knows what will come of it? Because if you have, if you have other footage uh, where where it's a little bit more clear what that symbology is, yeah. And I even told, I even suggested to Bitsola that there is so much more about Teal that is, has not come out, like yet, has not come out yet. Because we are focusing so much into, oh, she's a cult leader, oh, this, she's, did, she's jealous, she's manipulative, she's this, she's that, that there are so much more. And it's, which is very interesting, which can be super interesting, at least. And it might not it might not fit the true crime genre, of course. It doesn't, but you know, now that I think about it, there is uh, also uh, that. Okay, now a movie has been made using real <laughs> actors. <laughs> um, a studio, according to me, has been made. Um, now I can uh, maybe I can ask Tila if she wants to be in uh, operatic uh, movie. I mean, she's perfect. There is all the emotions are there, you know. All the emotions are there with the operatic music, seeing Tila walking with her. You know, I can see this operatic music all over. <laughs> yeah, and then the quest, the-, the question amongst cult researchers like myself and, you know, other critics would be like, are you helping to rehabilitate or create an international operatic singing star out of uh, <laughs> this person who actually, you know, might have some bad ideas? Uh, yeah, <laughs> and then it would go, but it would just turn. The wheel of media would turn, yeah? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. 
Interesting. Paola, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a real pleasure to speak with you, and I'm glad that uh, you're still. I'm glad that you're still following this story, and that you um, still have a a sensitive eye to it, because I think that's what's going to help. Uh, This is a very important cultural figure, and uh, I think understanding her in superficial ways is not helpful at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Nice conversation. Great conversation, actually. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. 